So greetings, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Wired podcast. Wired is a collaboration with the WMU, Lewis Walker Institute, the Western Student Association, and Western's own 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. Welcome, guests and regulars, <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, to the Wired podcast only on 89.1 WIDR Kalamazoo. Um, I will be one of your co-hosts for this podcast today. Um, you know me as the student body president for Western, but I also serve as the intern for the Lewis Walker Institute um, for the study of race and ethnic relations. And today our podcast discussion will be uh, surrounded around environmental justice, what that is, what we know about it as a community, um, and how we can kind of advance that to be better people to our planet, if that makes sense. Um, I'm joined today by Eden, Chelsea, Emma, Dahlia, um, some members from WSA and from the Office of um, Sustainability, their intern, and then our lovely wider consultant, uh, Kyle Paternio. Um, so we could just dive right into discussion, I guess. Um, what do you all know about environmental justice? What does it mean to you? So like maybe someone can break down for our listeners who have never heard of the climate crisis, climate change, environmental justice. So just given like, you know, one-on-one for dummies, if that makes sense. Not saying any of the listeners are dummies, disregard. But um, yeah. I can hop in here if nobody else wants to. Um, I think more broadly, environmental justice kind of stems from the term environmental racism was which had to do with the fact that marginalized communities tend to be more disproportionately affected by environmental hazards and the term environmental racism kind of transformed into the environmental justice movement that has to do with making sure that all communities are equally protected and equally exposed to the same hazards because in some degree it's a little bit inevitable and that they are equally involved in the decision-making processes as well. Thank you, Chelsea. And then we can kind of just like open it up to everybody. What does um, environmental justice mean to you? Have you ever, I guess I'll save that question for later, but what does environmental justice and the climate crisis mean to you as a human on this earth? That's a hard one to answer, but go ahead, Eden. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, I was just going to jump in and say, um, for me, climate or environmental justice really just means a need for action and a need to tackle this issue. Um, there's so much inequity in how the how climate change and this whole climate crisis is affecting lower income and minority communities, and we just we really need to tackle this issue. It's it's ridiculous and we need to learn how to build a just and sustainable future for all communities because climate change is only going to worsen and it's only going to affect these communities worse and we need to address it. Yeah, no, I, I really want to like emphasize the word that you used in the beginning, equity, because like I feel like that's what it's been like building up to. It's like not only is it unequal, but like moving forward, it has to be equitable and even today, even though we're talking about it, it just still isn't. And that's that's like a lot of different processes and we're, I'm, I'm not going to crap on capitalism because we always do that. But, you know, just in such a large system, it's hard to move something along that quickly when, you know, we want the change. But it, it takes it takes an army. It really does. 
A problem I've also encountered is it's it's really difficult to address it and try to inflict change without, I don't know, like a white savior complex added to it. Um, I feel like working with KCCC, the Kalamazoo Climate Crisis Coalition, that's been one of our big problems. Um, we're just a group of white people with one one representative of the African-American community. And it's just, it's so difficult to touch, address it because it can be really touchy at times. And we really do just want to help, but it's it's hard and yeah. yeah. It kind of yeah. read my mind on the white savior complex. There's a lot of people who want to care about it, but don't realize that they're like disabling the entire movement by not actually letting the people who are affected be included in the conversations because they feel entitled to be in it as well. Yeah, I think those are really good points. For me, like most of my understanding surrounding like environmental justice is surrounded by like the Flint water crisis. I had to read um, Dr. Mona Hanna-Tisha's book for one of my classes, um, What the Eyes Don't See. And I think like that title for, even if you haven't read the book, like the title is very like illuminating because it kind of gives you that idea of this is a this is an area where like most social justice movements it's people who have been ignored who have been who have not been given a seat at the table and then have been negatively affected by not having their voices heard but i think like with environmental justice even more so than some other injustice um injustices that are faced by people in america like this is one where because you have people who deny that climate change is even a thing like this is even lower of a priority i think to many people and it's something that like i would say fewer people have on their radar as something that needs to be solved so i think that that's an even like bigger challenge when trying to fight for environmental justice is that you're also fighting against people who not only deny that like there is disproportional effects towards people of color in America in general, you also have people denying that climate change is a thing. So you're up against a lot more barriers and a lot more people telling you that it doesn't matter. And it all goes back to apathy as well. Taylor, I didn't mean to cut you off. That that's just the one point I wanted to make here is, you know, even just understanding where someone else is coming from, you know, either in a marginalized community or not you're going to have that white savior complex that definitely, and it typically is white people that are, you know, not, uh, what's the word, accepting that climate change is a thing. Um, but yeah, Taylor, go ahead. Thank you. Um, so I was just going to like kind of tie into this conversation with explaining my journey to environmental justice. And we can all thank Chelsea for this because <laughs> she's been the one kind of educating me throughout the whole process of it, especially um, as my time as vice or as president, because I could tell you before this year, I wasn't even really worried about the earth eating us up in like 10 years, if I'm being completely honest, because as a student of color and as a person of color, I'm, that's not one of my major concerns, which again, is not an excuse. However, just my priorities are elsewhere, which is for a lot of um, students of color, you know, especially for the black community, like they're killing us dead on the street. So like, we're trying to just survive in the jungle, you know? And if our earth eats us up, like that's another factor getting, like trying to get rid of us at this point. But I do think it's exactly, it's survival. But I do think um, the enlightenment I've had on this topic, again, thanks to Chelsea, um, I realized that there are things, perspectives that can be shifted to consider this a humanitarian issue instead of just like another factor getting ready to wipe out like communities of color, you know? And 
I do think, and I've been doing some heavy, like some lifting, um, especially for our event that we have coming up for our listeners, March 11th, we're having a panel discussion on environmental justice. And then we're having a part two to that panel discussion on the 18th. These are both Thursdays at 4 p.m. from 4 to 5.30. Um, so you definitely should tune into that. We have a registration link going up on the WSA's um, social media. So check that out, but that was a quick plug. Um, however, I do remember sitting on this um, climate, again, I feel like we have like a bunch of different commissions dedicated to climate change. Um, so sitting on one of them with Chelsea, I'm talking about our environmental justice project. Um, and that's also where I met Eden. Um, and there were about 30, 33 people on the call. And I was the only person of color. And I had, you know, I, I had clicked the arrow to look. I was like, is this, is this legit? Like, so that's kind of what got me looped into it. Cause I'm like, you know, this is a humanitarian issue. This isn't just like a white issue that, you know, white people need to like overcome and like figure out. It's like everybody, like if you have a beating heart, we need to, we need to really be looking at this because we keep taking natural resources from our earth and then the earth just gonna swallow us up, man. It's just gonna swallow us up. It's not happy. So that kind of brought it to fruition for me. And so I've been having conversations with um, black students around, you know, campus asking like, hey, like, what's your, what's your take on like climate change and environmental justice? And they're like, and they know, like, they know it's an issue, but again, priorities are scattered and it's understandable. So I guess the question, like, I want to throw back to the group is like, how would you approach looping in different communities of color, Latinx, Asian Pacific Islander, you know, black, how would you, how would you encourage these communities to be looped into the conversation and actually given that priorities and perspectives are, are elsewhere, which is completely natural and like understood and understandable. How would you approach this to loop in, you know, the community, which is majority marginalized students? I would love to hop in here. Um, I have a very, very strong critique of top-down approaches. I just don't think they work. We don't need to be coming in as, you know, an institution and trying to tell people this is what's best for you. Um, I think that governments and institutions and these structures need to be providing the means for grassroots organizations and communities to lift themselves up because at the end of the day, they know what's best for their communities. There is um, a pretty compelling story for that in Detroit. There was a primarily black community that had an opportunity to pass uh, like a local piece of legislation that would plant a bunch of trees in their community and they all voted no. And it was like, well, why? Trees are great. Like, why would you vote no on that? And somebody actually had this crazy thought of going into this neighborhood and asking one of them why they voted no. And the reason why they voted no was because nobody actually asked them to begin with if they wanted the trees. And the conversation needs to start with the people that it's actually going to affect before we fix anything. You have to start in the communities that are directly being affected rather than coming from Uncle Sam and being like, here's what we're doing now because people just don't like that. <laughs> and understandably so. Um, back to Taylor's point, I mean, for a lot of Black communities, that's that's a similar thing. You don't want this white savior complex coming in and being like, we're trying to help you. Like, even if you are well-intentioned, it's not going to matter because they're not going to see you like that because of it all goes back to capitalism. But um, yeah, I would say um, 
that I, as a social work major, we've had to, you know, think about um, the service that we provide to communities and all of that, and uh, essentially in, intent versus impact. It all goes back to that. Um, and the, it like, you don't want to just like think of a pro like, for example, our environmental justice project, we have an action component that we're um, figuring out logistics for right now about incorporating rain barrels into the Kalamazoo community to help with flooding. Um, and, but what if we like make these rain barrels and we're like, here you go, here's some rain barrels. And they're like, uh, we didn't ask for this and we don't even know how to maintain this. What if exactly. you know, my rain barrel breaks? And what if I don't know how to fix it? You know, so there's different components that go into creating projects like this and serving the community. You have to get with community leaders. And this is what I'm also learning in Dr. Cooney's class um, uh, for community organizing is like, you can't just do something and be like, here you go, like you need this. And they're like, no, we actually really don't need that. Um, so there's different like behind the scenes logistics and operational things that you have to figure out when you're trying to give back to the community, like talk to those community leaders first, see what their plan is, and then say, how can I help with that plan? Or I have this plan, do you think that fits with it? Do we wanna alter it? Like, it's just a conversation to see like what would be beneficial for the people in that community. And the first step to figuring that out is talking to the people in that community to see what they want. And you know what, Taylor, that just kind of sounds like exactly what you do to us in WSA. It's not how can I do it for you? It's what do you need from me to be successful in your own right? And I just don't feel like that's such a simple concept that we can't replicate it at a community countrywide international scale. I would say that westernized thoughts of environmentalism and saviors is everywhere. 89.1 Wider FM is the student-run radio station at Western Michigan University. Along with the Western Herald and Western Herald Video, Wider is part of the WMU Student Media Group and is supported in part through donations. If you would like to donate to the station, please click on the button on our website, online at widrfm.org. Yeah, I was going to kind of come in with like, because capitalism is generally the enemy of this podcast to like kind of come in with like a I guess a counter in this situation because like capitalism and business enterprise are so much to blame for like for the climate crisis in general but specifically thinking about communities who are affected by this I know like um just thinking about like being in the Chicago area and that's where like I grew up obviously in the suburbs but as you get closer to the city there's a lot of people who are in situations where businesses have come in and set up um factories and companies which essentially poisoned the people who lived there over time um and I think that's a very common story that you see especially surrounding cities and so in addition to coming in and being like what do you need and how can we help you I think it's also about like paying these people back for what they have suffered. So like when it comes to whether you're making an argument for reparations in, in general, or you're thinking about these companies who have come in and destroyed communities health and like created public health crises, like they should be paying up to these people that they have destroyed their community, destroyed their public health. Like I, in my opinion, it's really on the people who made the mess to support these people in their like process of cleaning it up, of making their communities safer, of creating environmental justice. Like there has to be an accountability piece of it, a hundred percent. I know that just came in the 
chat. I'm glad you threw that word in because that's exactly where I was going. Um, I'm just going to hop in here because we're talking about capitalism. Dr. Wallace, thank you for joining us. You already know where this conversation is going. <laughs> so um, I feel like as a world, we've kind of shifted, especially during the industrial period and multiple industrial periods. But um, there's been a shift of like, how can we make money the fastest instead of let's make sure that the place we're living can sustain what we're trying to do like exponentially, you know what I'm saying? So um, I think we have moved, and I always tell people this, I'm like, I feel like it was much simpler times when we were just like, you know, naked in the forest picking berries. Like, I feel like that was like, before we added all of the, you know, <laughs> monetary like aspects to our to our society, I feel like it was just based on like survival and living and, taking the earth's nourishment and living with essentially using what we have instead of not making it like man-made instead of not creating something to benefit just us especially for like a short period of time like technology it's always going to just give out you know computers aren't built to last forever okay so it's just it just sucks that <coughs> sorry I just choked it just sucks that we are um like looking for these short-term satisfactions instead of like long terms especially setting up for our descendants to have a place to live if that makes sense yeah i mean i want to go ahead good oh okay <laughs> stop being a midwesterner okay i'll go uh so i wanted to bring up another point about capitalism but not necessarily painting it in a negative light so i think capitalism as a free market like the concept in itself is very noble however when you add greed and stuff like that into the picture, I think that's where we get these self-serving technology platforms and things that are not environmentally sustainable. So I think that's kind of the main issue I have with it. But yeah, I just wanted to bring that up real quick. No, and you're totally right. Like capitalism is, you can have sustainable capitalism. It's just that at some point in history, I feel like we really traded human well-being for money and power. And, you know, that's obvious. I mean, look at where we are. And as time has gone on, that's just become more and more evident that you have countries like the United States, China, who have a lot of wealth. GDP is incredibly high, but to some degree, some degree, human well-being still isn't that high. And then you look right. at countries who don't have incredibly high GDP and they have higher human well-being than some of us do. And it's We're not really focused on all the product. Exactly. They're focused on maintaining their people rather than El Dinero. That's a great point. Good afternoon or good morning, everybody. I think that uh, sometimes we forget about the, the need for the greater society. And I think that that's part of why we, we place profits over environment or we place um, what's easiest over and what's expedient over you know, the long-term impacts. I mean, if we look at um, the placement of some of, our, some of our manufacturing facilities, those tend to be in lower income communities. Those tend to be in locations where people think that they are a wasteland. So it's, it's, it, when we look at human value, we have to ask ourselves, who is what is most important? Right, you know, Kyle, you mentioned like there's a plant that's a giant plant that's on the north side of Kalamazoo. Yeah, and there's been lots of, of complaints about the 
pollution that's coming out of that plant. Whereas the, the plant that's right down the street um, from my house in Portage is, uh, doesn't produce those things. It's producing other stuff that's not, uh, that wouldn't harm our local environment. Um, I think that when we think back to the film that we watched a few weeks ago, our documentary, you know, when you look at uh, the rates of certain diseases, um, when you look at Flint, Michigan, and where in Flint the greatest incidences of lead happen to take place, those were downstream from the auto plant. They were, uh, you know, that's where you saw the backfilling, like the waste that would come out. So I don't know, uh, who are we valuing? Flint is a perfect example of that. Like you look at that whole crisis, it never would have flied in Farmington Hills or Rochester, or any of the upper upper class neighborhoods in Eastern Michigan. They never would have decided to make those budget cuts. It, it's just ridiculous. And I am so glad that the people that were making those decisions are finally being held accountable for them. Rick Snyder, all the people that worked in the Flint watershed. Um, I think we need more accountability. I'm, I'm glad we're finally starting to recognize that and hold people accountable, but I think we have a long way to go still. But Eden, to your point, I mean, it, these, these, it didn't start with them and it's not going to end with them. I mean, if you think about the situation with Flint, lead in their water system, lead in the Flint River did not just happen overnight. It happened as a direct result of Kettering's research when they're looking at how can we prevent engines from knocking? Well, let's infuse lead into the gasoline to prevent engines from knocking. And, and when they were doing that research, when they were looking at that production, that waste as they were going through that process had to go somewhere. Where did it go? Into the Flint River. So it's not like lead just popped up all of a sudden. So this was really an issue that has been lingering within Flint and Genesee County for decades. And it unfortunately had to come to the light after those budget cuts, because who do we value? What do we value money more than people? Yeah. And I grew up about half hour outside of Flint and always have been a little terrified to go there, which is interesting. It's a, it's a like racist, like upbringing idea. That's not really that racist, but when you sit down and think about it, it's like, you're just not engaging with these communities because you're unaware of them. And another thing I wanted to bring up too was um, if, if we're going back on the environmental thing, just the whole Midland Saginaw water plant just just getting completely demolished. I think it was a dam that broke. Someone can correct me, but yes, um, yeah, just looking at you know people like with property there having boats. And it's like, all right, your boat is now sunken into the water. Like, have fun. <laughs> like, that's just crazy to me. And so I think, yeah, it's it's all around the state. It's all around the world, and we just gotta. We got to hold people accountable, I think. What's actually really interesting when you bring up dams is there's a ton of dams in Michigan, like a lot. And the number of people who are supposed to oversee and make sure that these dams are functioning as well as they're supposed to, they barely have any money. Like the number of dams, the number of people that they have is ridiculous. And I haven't looked, but I would love to see like these dams that are considered really faulty or at risk, how many of them are in low-income, marginalized minority communities? And I bet it would be pretty high. 
Yeah, I just looked up the number. This is off of a quick Google search, but there are 2,523 dams as of June 5th, 2020 in Michigan. So yeah, to your point, how many of them are in marginalized communities? How many of them are about to pull up Midland and just fall apart, you know? And it's where the funding's at. I mean, they usually, it, the, the funding comes in when it's it's either about to break or you know, the crisis. It's always a last, it's always a last reserve or last, last second, like reactive complex. It's reactive. Yeah, exactly. So do you want another fun fact related to the dams? So you said there's like 2000, so I've seen several numbers, um, but somewhere we know there's somewhere between 1000 and 2000 dams in the state of Michigan inspectors two. you can count them on two fingers and they're supposed to be inspected every three to five years. Good luck with that. <laughs> I'm just saying. And I believe that Michigan's department is like one of the least staffed and underfunded in the country. I, I could be a little bit wrong in that, but I know that compared to other states, even though we have a ton of dams, we are severely understaffed and under budgeted. Another quick point I wanted to make, it's like not entirely relevant, but considering that Minnesota is like land of the lakes or whatever, they have, uh, according to this, according to their DNR, about uh, 1,150. So they're already coming in lower than us, and I'm guessing they're slightly more staffed. So it's just, that's just interesting to me. But I think you have to also ask who owns the dams? What is the purpose of the dams? Because then it comes back to that whole um, argument that you were making earlier about the connection between um, finances, people, and values, and accountability. Because in the state of Michigan, our dams and, and our dams are owned and operated by individuals and private companies, basically. And so, um, if you own a dam, I mean, it might be more cost-effective to skip that inspection every couple of years or to not make those um require it might be cheaper to pay the fine than to repair the dam so yeah I think (laughs) yeah I think that's a really good point and I think to go back to the idea of like proactivity versus reactivity I think with climate justice related issues it's an even bigger issue it's an even bigger problem to be reactive because with climate justice, it's not just, oh, we reacted late and we didn't save a, the people's lives who, you know, were killed when a dam burst. Like when you're thinking about this, it's a long-term impact. It's even if we start reacting after a few people have died, there could still be thousands of people who are going to die from the long-term effects. And so it's hard to like, you know, try to stop us, like try to stop like a flood that's already happening whether that's a physical flood or that's, you know, thinking about Flint and how even if they, even once they change the water source for the community, people are still sick and they're still passing that sickness down. And it's something that's going to take years and years to fully end. And so, especially thinking about pollution and things like that, like a lot of that stuff is something you can't stop and you can't change once it's been initiated. So it has to be I think paid attention to even closer as these decisions are being made. And now that like people have a little bit more of a lens of, you know, the environmental impact. And I think there are more organizations who are encouraging and like out and out fighting for people to pay attention to environmental issues and pay attention to the footprint that they're creating. It's about like making sure that those things are thought of before the plant goes up 
and making sure those communities are well informed of, hey, this plant is going to be your community. And these are the potential effects that could occur so that these communities can, you know, have the ability to step up and say, hey, we don't want this here, because I don't think there was even that opportunity given to come to the table and say, we don't want this here. It was just a matter of this land that we can purchase and we're putting it here. We don't care about the people going back to what Dr. Wallace was talking about. It's about money and not people. Oh, that's, you're entirely correct. And I think it's really interesting that like the communities that they put these factories in, I mean, they even go so far as to pick like Hispanic communities who they'll put up like flyers saying like, hey, we are putting a factory here, but they'll be in English and stuff like that. Like they, they really take the next step to make sure that they don't include those communities in the conversations or make it as hard as possible. Yeah, and going back to uh, the physical companies that are owning a lot of these dams, this is just from Wikipedia, um, seeing a lot like a lot of consumers energy, uh, Wisconsin Electric Power Company, et cetera, et cetera. So owned by corporations, I mean, granted consumers energy does run a lot of the power grid for Michigan, but I feel like on their end too, they have just so many moving pieces and parts and if they don't even have people supervising their own dams, it's like, what is that telling you? You know, what that tells me is that this is one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. We are listening to the Wired podcast. I tell you, this is an amazing conversation. Thanks, y'all. Let's keep the conversation going. Question kind of straying away from the conversation we were just having. We can loop back to it, but. Um, and this is actually something Chelsea and I were talking about yesterday, but have any of you experienced or know someone that has experienced um, like rate, like um, environmental racial injustice, someone who's been impacted by that? Are you asking if we have personal experience with that, President West? Yeah, if you have personal experience or anyone you know that has had, that has been personally affected by that. Yes. And so I can tell you, um, so I'm originally from North Carolina and, and actually this dam issue is actually, and I don't need D-A-M-N, but D-A-M, of course, right. Um, but this dam issue is, is really huge because a lot of times the communities that are most um, impacted by dams, whether you're opening the dam, closing the dam, whatever you're doing to it, um, typically are poor communities. So I remember there was um, a hurricane that uh, resulted in an entire, an entire um, black community being completely submerged underwater. And the reason, the reason that they lifted, that they opened up the dam was because they wanted to save the multi-million dollar homes that were upstream. And I think that that's a problem. And thank you for bringing out the point, Chelsea, that the North Carolina is the birthplace of the environmental justice movement, because I know that as a college student, um, which was a few years ago, but that's okay. When I was like you, I mean, environmental justice and looking at um, uh, environmental justice as it relates to race and ethnicity was something that I focused on as an undergrad because it was, it was apparent and it was appalling that people were making decisions um, based on the value that we placed on people's lives. Again, Hurricane Katrina. I mean, I know that for a lot of you, y'all are either infants or young children when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. But the great, the big issue about, you know, uh, New Orleans and especially the Fourth Ward had to do with just not only how um, the settlement was established, but when you, when the levees break, where does the water go? 
It didn't go to the French Quarter because the French Quarter was built up on a hill. It was intentional. So when we think about how we're even um, architecturally setting up our communities for success or failure, that that's all that's all related. So yes, I've experienced it, and I can the list goes on, but I'll just stop with those. I actually have a question for you then. Since you, you know, went to school in North Carolina, you grew up there, has your experience been that people in North Carolina, since it is generally considered the birthplace, is it people care more about it, they talk more about it, or at least compared to Kalamazoo, what, what, how do you feel the differences? Um, I would, I don't necessarily think that people, I would say that people care or, nor, or know more. Um, I would say that I, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I did my undergrad, was known as one of the most socially active um, campuses in the nation. I think at that time it was we were second only maybe to Brown, where we would protest absolutely anything and everything. So I think that really and truly, what what matters more is having voices like each of yours that comes out and and brings awareness to what's going on so that people can take action. And I think it's also important for us to be able to give people specific examples of how they can take action once they know better. And once they know that there is an issue, what do we do next? This conversation specifically just gives me a lot of hope for our generation because we're here talking about how being reactive versus proactive has not worked and that we are really dedicated to not letting history repeat itself and being more of a proactive generation and yes, getting this done before there is a problem and before more problems arise and yeah. I was just gonna say, I think part of at least our generation's challenge is gonna be changing the minds of those a little bit ahead of us, our parents, grandparents, and kind of helping them to see the other side of it that hasn't always been so apparent to them, but is incredibly apparent to us and making sure that these conversations are productive instead of, you know, angry and making sure that what we're doing is constructive and not talking at each other. That's good, Chelsea. I think that, um, again, I'll say policy discussions are huge because um, for us, it's, it's one thing for us to say, this is the right thing to do, but it's another thing to legislate something and say, this is what you must do. And so a lot of times we don't see the change that we want to see because we're depending upon the goodness of people's hearts. And I'm not saying that people aren't good, but at the end of the day, if it's easier, more convenient and cheaper to do it my way or to do it the way that it's always been done, then we're not gonna change. Until you outlaw styrofoam, styrofoam will still be here. Styrofoam will still stay in our landfills and we'll continue to fill it up. So until, until we have other alternatives, then, and we have policy that backs that. Oh my gosh. Did you hear about the worms that apparently eat styrofoam? Yes, the mealworms. Yes. yes. <laughs> I just had to mention that because I heard that and was like, yes, we can finally solve the styrofoam crisis because can't recycle it, can't throw it away. It's just the vein of our existence. But that's a bunch of worms. I mean, really, we're going to fill our world with worms and goats just to eat up all the stuff that we've decided to create that we can't do away with. 89.1 Wider FM is the student-run radio station at Western Michigan University. Along with the Western Herald and Western Herald Video, Wider is part of the WMU Student Media Group and supported in part through a student assessment fee. 
Learn more about WIDER, discover how you can join our team, and listen online at widrfm.org. All right, y'all, this is, I mean, I, I don't want to, I mean, we can end on the worms, but uh, what, what are some... <laughs> What, what are some, what are some closing thoughts? You know, what are some next steps that we're going to take and what are we going to do coming up in the next few weeks to address these issues? I think we're going to talk about it as, you know, as Taylor has already mentioned, we're doing this event and we talk about a lot of things, but we're going to talk and hopefully include the people who this actually affects because it's not a conversation I think is worth having all the time, unless you're really including the people who it affects and the people that have the efficacy to change their own communities or at least motivated to do so. Um, I think that's kind of our next steps as all of us in this room are kind of the middle people. Um, as I think Dr. Keel once said, you know, we're not, we're not from the top down, we're not from the bottom up, but we're in the middle and we kind of have the ability to go in either direction and create some change. Heck yeah, we're gonna talk about it, but we can talk all day. Um, and it's something that I've realized this year, especially with all the you know, factors hitting our, our nation and students and especially college students wanting to get involved and create change. They're looking for guidance. And I know we, we talk about this all the time with the Walker Institute and figuring out like, cause we do have the platform that we do. How can we address students' concerns, address their needs. And a lot of the needs that we're getting back from our like general feedback form from events is I want to learn how I can do everything you just talked about. Like I want an actual um, guide to show me like how I can be an advocate in my own community on the topic of racial justice, on the topic of environmental justice, all of that. So I think that when Chelsea, you know, the, when her brainchild came to be about this event and she thought she always had the thought of, you know, how can we take this to the next level? How can we make it better? How can we do more? And then Chelsea thought about or uh, reflected on her time um, and her study abroad experience to New Orleans and doing the Rain Barrel Project there. And it was like, what if we just bring that to Kalamazoo, giving students that guidance that they're that they're looking for in terms of, you know, how can I be an advocate in my own community and give back to my earth? Absolutely. So in, in addition to our two presentations on March 11th and March 18th, we are also scheduling an advocacy opportunity, an advocacy day, so that we can really focus on this experience and building the capacity of our students and communities. So mark your calendars. I believe we decided it was gonna be March 23rd. Am I right, Taylor, March 23rd? Is that what we're gonna do? We and, might have, uh, yeah, we may, we, that's to be determined right now. TBD. We may have to push okay. it back at TBD, but okay. definitely look out on um, in the Lewis Walker Institute's um, newsletter and then also on WSA's social media um, for those updates regarding that. But in our conversations, we should have it figured out by then to give students that next step. Um, that they're looking for after we have these intriguing conversations. I'd love to Sweet. throw in Earth Day too. Um, this year, yes. you know, we're going to talk about community and Earth Day is big. This is a chance for the Western community, the Kalamazoo community, everyone around here to kind of come together and talk about why we care. Thank you so much. This has been yet another amazingly intriguing podcast, uh, Wired podcast with a uh, Lewis Walker Institute and WSA on Kalamazoo Zone 89.1 WIDR. Thank you so much. We're signing out. You 
are listening to Wider FM online at WIDRFM.org.